Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 this morning. And as you do, imagine, if you will, you're a small garrison of soldiers pinned down behind enemy lines, or better yet, prisoners taken captive by hostile invaders. You were outnumbered, outgunned, and the enemy has overpowered you, and, and now you're forced to live in their land and eat their food and hear the accent of their language with very little evidence of possible escape, and you've been here for, for quite some time. Life seems pretty bleak. But then picture what it, would, what it would be like to hear a report that your army is approaching and they will imminently march on the, the castle that, that holds you. And envision what you would feel like when you heard the, the battle horn of your army, very familiar to you, echoing across the field outside of the walls and and what it, would, what it would feel like, the anticipation as it grew louder and louder as, as you're hearing it or listening to it inside your cell. If you can, you might get an idea of the, the purpose of Daniel chapter 7 and what the, the Jewish people felt like whenever they, they read it. When they read Daniel 7, they heard the echo of a, of a trumpet and we're transitioning this morning from the historical portions of, of Daniel in the first six chapters to the future events that, that unfold in chapters 7 through, through 12. And Daniel has provided us personal instruction as God's faithful people. And now in chapter 7, he turns to the prophetic insight about God's unfolding plan. Both of them are to encourage uh, us to be faithful until this future uh, event arrives. There are only two books in the Bible that meet the requirements for pure eschatology, and that's Daniel and Revelation. And, and Daniel is the most specific of the, of, of the two. There are things in Daniel that, that are really just, they're not just terrifying, they're breathtaking at how, how accurate and specific they, they are. It's describing the coming end of the world's empire and the everlasting kingdom of God's Son. And you sang about that this morning. And everything in the book of Daniel prepares us for chapter 7. Everything before it leads up to chapter 7, and everything after it points back or refers to, to chapter 7 in, in one way. So it's the, it's the central part of the book. Arguably, chapter 7 is the most important in, in the book of Daniel. E.W. Heaton said it would be no exaggeration to say this chapter is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. And you've seen the three themes that Daniel has for us repeated over and over. And we'll finish one of those themes this morning and launch into that prophetic section. God foretold, uh, foretells world history, that's in chapter 2 and 7 today. God controls kings and kingdoms in chapter 4 and 5, and God delivers His faithful that trust in Him in chapter 3 in the fiery furnace, and then chapter 6 in the lion's den that, that we just finished. And now we're going to see how those themes are fulfilled in the future kingdom that, that's coming. In chapter 7, you have a bridge between the future that's coming and the past. 
uh, it transitions from the historical stories to, to visions. But, but chapter 7 has a little bit of both. It, it kind of has its feet in both worlds. You, it still uses Aramaic language like chapters 2 through 6, but, but it's a vision that, that Daniel has. So that's connected to chapters 8 through 12. Uh, it's an expansion of Nebuchadnezzar's vision or his dream that he receives in chapter 2, which Daniel interpreted, but, but chapter 7 goes into greater detail, and that points to the second half of the book. You might think of Daniel 7 like the spiral ring of a notebook. It, it holds everything together. We get chapter 7 wrong, and you get the book of Daniel wrong. Um, don't close its gaps and your eschatology homework will fall out uh, all over the floor. It'll get all jumbled up. It's like the coupling on a, on a locomotive. It connects the front car to the caboose. And without that connection, you don't really have a train. You, you just have cars. And all the stories that we love in, in chapters 1 through 6 prepare us for, for these coming scenes. I mean, in those we've learned who Daniel was and more importantly, who his God was. We learned that this God sets up kings and he takes them down. And if he's able to do that, if he's able to do all the things that we've seen him do in the first six chapters, deliver from the, the lion's den, then he surely possesses the ability to foretell the future. You see, some people would like to divide up the Bible uh, kind of like a fast food menu. I'll, I'll take one of those and a little of that. I mean, give me the moral stories of Jesus, but just plain, please. No, no supernatural miracles or, or prophecy. And, and light on the judgment passages, too. Uh, uh, just, we'll just take the ones that apply to somebody who's worse than me. But you take all of the Bible or none of the Bible. I mean, you can't have Jesus as a good moral teacher when he claimed to be God. Because if he wasn't, then, then there's nothing good or moral about him. But if he was... God, that is, then it shouldn't surprise you that he holds the stars in his hands and that he is able to reveal what is coming in his book. If he's able to create, then he's able to bring calamity. If he's able to cause the, the seas to gather together, he is surely able to walk on them. And if he's able to forgive your sins, then he surely knows the future. And that's exactly what he begins to share with us today. Daniel chapter 7 is pretty simple to, to outline. It has two parts. There's the detailed vision in chapters 1 through 14 that Nate read for us this morning. And then there's the disturbing interpretation that comes from verses 15 through 28. And both of them leave Daniel with questions. Uh, and, and he's terrified twice in, in this book. Once in verse 15, and then at the end of the book of Daniel, he's still terrified. And all of his alarm surrounds the little horn from the fourth kingdom. And all of the questions that Daniel asks in this chapter, that the, all of their entire focus is on this fourth beast and this little horn. In verse 19, he asks, What kingdom is this fourth beast? Who are the, who are the ten horns that, that are part of it? Like you, he wants to know... Will they prevail? And this chapter is set up to answer all of those questions. And it does so in a very dramatic way. I mean, we get to see in the very throne room of God in Daniel 7. It's kind of like Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It's, it's one of those Mount Everest passages in the Bible. And we're going to see how those questions are resolved from heaven's perspective. 
which is the main difference between chapter 2 and chapter 7. I mean, the theme of Nebuchadnezzar's statue and, and Daniel's four beasts are the same. The statue had four kingdoms. The beasts represent four kingdoms. God foretells uh, the world history, and he'll set up his, his eternal kingdom in the end. Chapter 7 goes beyond that. It has three additions. There's a more detailed prophecy about the fourth kingdom in chapter 7. And there's also an explanation of what happens before the, the divine stone that's cut without hands. You remember the stone in chapter 2 that comes hurling uh, through, the, through the sky and, and, and hits the feet of the, of the statue and busts it up. We, we, we kind of get a little, a little cutaway, if you will, and... We see what, what's happening while this stone is, is hurling through, through the sky. But most importantly, chapter 7 is told from heaven's perspective. Chapter 2 and 7 both have four earthly kingdoms, and, and including the, the final one before the kingdom of God replaces them all with an everlasting reign. But, but chapter 7 turns the telescope around. I mean, chapter 2 is told from a human perspective, and... And the earthly kings look, look glorious and, and very large. But, but in chapter 7, the, the four kingdoms are viewed from heaven and they look very different. I mean, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 is a great statue. It looks like a, the kingdoms look like a great man gloriously standing and yet gradually deteriorating through, through history. And in chapter 7, Daniel describes the four kingdoms from God's vantage point and they're like four unclean beasts, destructive and vile, like a lion and a bear and a leopard and, and, and one that's indescribable at the very end. Daniel also focuses in chapter 7 on the fourth and final kingdom, which is the most important in God's prophetic calendar. So, so like these second themes of, of the earlier chapters, we, we get added info. Chapter 2 has... There's a statue with ten toes in the final ten kingdoms. Uh, uh, chapter 7, this beast has ten horns. But chapter 7 goes further. It describes a, a little horn that rises in the middle of those, those ten, ten horns, tears out three, three of them and, and, and assimilates them, and, and then this little horn defies God himself and wages war on God's people, and he seems to be winning until the Lord destroys this little boasting ruler and then gives his everlasting kingdom to the Son of Man and his people. We're only going to introduce the vision today, and so we're going to look at three scenes. And the first one is just in the very first verse, which is Daniel is in his bedroom and he has this, he has this vision. And then it moves from his bedroom to earth. The vision that Daniel sees is of the earth, and that's verses 2 through 8. And then it transports us to heaven... And that's verses 9 through 14, and, and all of them point to what's coming. So we'll get three insights into heaven's view of the earth's kingdoms. There's the venue of the dream, that's Daniel's, Daniel's vision in the night, verse 1. There's the actual vision of what happens on earth, four beastly kingdoms. And then there's the vantage point of those kingdoms from God's throne in verses 9 through 11. So the venue, the vision, and the, the vantage point. And you'll get these as we go through. Let's look at the first one here. If you would, at verse 1. Here's the time of the, the vision. 
It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and, and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So Daniel begins describing the setting of this, this great vision that he receives. And I want you to notice that he transitions to first person. I mean, up to this point, it's been third person. So it, it's been stories about Daniel and about his, his three friends. But, but these are Daniel's words. This is a real personal experience. I saw, I spoke, he says. And he tells us that he had a dream that contained a vision. And, and it happened in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So chronologically, we've gone backwards in to the beginning of Belshazzar's reign in Babylon. If you remember, up to this point, all we get is the very last day that Belshazzar spends on the earth. But, but Daniel has a vision, actually, in the, in the very first year of, of his reign. So it occurs about 14 years before the fall of Babylon, between the stories of chapter 4 and 5 of the, uh, of the book. Nebuchadnezzar died in... 562 B.C., uh, that's nine years before Belshazzar began to reign. And you remember Nabonidus takes the throne and then he appoints Belshazzar, his son, as co-regent three years later in 553 B.C. So Daniel, in this vision, when he gets this vision, he's still in Babylon, having just lived through, through a tumult of, of leaders. And, but God reveals to him, Belshazzar, the wicked king, takes the throne. His very first year, he tells Daniel, this man's end is, is coming. And now you know why Daniel was so confident in his divine finger-painting proclamation with the handwriting on the wall. He knew years before that night that, of Belshazzar's drunken feast that his boastful rule would end and that God would preserve his, his people. In fact, all of these visions come throughout Daniel's life, and they span over the kingdoms. They're, they're given chronologically as you look to the rest of the book. Chapter 7 is in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Chapter 8, the third year. Chapter 9, the first year of Darius the Mede. And then chapters 10 and 12, the, the third year of Cyrus. I mean, if you want to think about them related to the stories that you know well, the first two visions, chapters 7 and 8 occurred before Belshazzar's feast. The vision of chapter 9 occurs before the lion's den. And then the fourth vision in chapters 10 and 12, the last event in Daniel is probably sometime after the, the lion's den. But I want you to notice that Daniel not only has a dream, but, but he has a vision. It, it's a, it, the type of of interaction that, that he has. Look, if you would, at verse 1. See, the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, I saw a dream and visions in my mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote down and re related the, the following summary of it. And then Daniel begins to, to speak. He calls it a vision. He calls it a vision throughout this, this chapter. But it comes to him while while at night, while he's asleep. So it's something that starts as a dream and then gives way to a vision. And, and he realizes it's really important. So, so he writes down its substance. That's what the word means. He, he writes down the most important details. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever had a thought in the middle of the night and you wake up and you know you're going to forget it before the next morning, so you, you want to you write it down. Those details are, are vital for us. It starts as a dream and gives way as a vision because a dream 
and a vision are different from a biblical sense. I don't know if you realize that or not. A dream is different from a vision. A dream is one-way communication from God to the person having the dream. But a vision is participatory. I mean, in a dream, God provides supernatural communication while someone is asleep, but it's passive. It's just the reception of, of information. But, but a vision is different. It's, it's interactive. I mean, the person typically gets to participate in, in a vision. One commentator that pointed this out to me said, said a dream is like a movie, but, but a vision is like virtual reality. You, 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 you kind of watch a dream. But in a vision, you, it's like you're there. You're, you're relating to what you see. It has different scenes, and you can speak to those who, who, who are a part of it. And here, Daniel is able to speak to one of the angels, and they communicate. And in verse 16, Daniel approaches the one that's standing there, and he asks a, a question, and they carry on a conversation. He actually gives him the interpretation. You see the same thing in Revelation with John. That's a, that's a vision as, as well. Revelation 1.10, John was told to write what he sees. And when he sees it, he face plants at God's glory. But then he's touched and told to rise. He carries on a conversation. And whether God sends a dream or a vision in the Bible is often purposeful as well. They're different because they have a different purpose. So if you think about like Abraham in Genesis 15, he has the opposite order of Daniel. Abraham, in chapter 15, where God reaffirms the covenant, is given a vision first and then a dream. Daniel gets a dream and then a vision. Or Genesis 15, Abraham interacts with God in this vision when the Lord was reaffirming His covenant with him. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear. And then in verse 2, Abraham says to the Lord. Abraham speaks. He, he interacts. But when he asked the Lord how this can be, how, how God's going to accomplish his covenant since, since uh, Sarah hasn't even had a single child yet, then God answers Abraham's question in a dream. Because a dream is, is passive. It's, it's one way. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. It was purposeful. The dream is purposeful now. It's to reinforce to to Abram or Abraham when his name is changed, that, that his answer to his question is that God alone will accomplish his covenant. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with you. And so the Lord goes on a nine-verse speech and does all the talking and, and all the moving in, in the dream. And, and Abraham doesn't say one word. He just receives the information. He's passive because you're passive in that in that covenant from the standpoint of initiating it. And in chapter 2, you look back to the, to the great statue, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't have a vision. He doesn't interact with it. He just receives the, the vision of the, of the great statue. He had no idea what it meant, and neither did the wise men of Babylon. But here, in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and he writes it down because he knows it's from God. And the Lord shows him exactly what he means. It's been 50 years since Daniel received an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But this time Daniel is given a very targeted view with a lot more information. It's a vision and there's more info. That's the target. It's more info about the final kingdom, specifically about this blustery ruler, this little horn. 
In Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is told what will take place one way. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Stone cut from the mountain of God will come in like a missile and utterly destroy all the kingdoms of men. But we're not told how. We're not told any details. But in chapter 7 we are. So chapter 2 is the dream. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar is an unbeliever at that point. And now God shares intimate detail with Daniel, his servant, of what's coming. That's a profound principle in the Bible. God freely shares His plans with His people. I mean, the Lord does not play go fish with His children. Ever play that game when you're a kid? Are there any sharks coming, Lord? Go fish. I mean, God names them. He, he, he tells them that they're, tells us that they're coming. He even tells His net's going to catch them all. You don't have to worry about any of those. Do you know Jesus follows the same pattern in the New Testament during His ministry by using parables? In Mark 4, he gives a, he gives a parable to, to a crowd, and it's the only, he only gives the interpretation to his disciples. He tells them in Mark 4.10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, it's his disciples, began asking him about the parables, and he was saying to them, to his followers, to you it has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. What should you take away from this? If you want more from God, then believe and obey what He's already told you, and He'll give you more. God freely gives His Word and insight into His Word to to His children. Don't spend your time asking God, though, to show you His unknown will for the future when you won't obey the will that you know in the present, right? I mean, that makes sense. It's once that you're faithful in little things that God makes you ruler over the much, because He knows that you won't, you won't obey. If you won't obey on the basic level, then the more will just overwhelm, uh, overwhelm you. It's not wise to to give a five year old a motorcycle before he even masters their, it's his training wheels. And don't look for the the deeper things of God when you won't believe the elementary things, when you won't believe the most basic things. Isn't that what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? I've spoken to you earthly things and you don't believe them. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Daniel believes. And so in his vision, Daniel sees events happening in two places. Events happening on the earth and then events happening in in heaven. In verses 2 through 8, start with the earthly. And this begins with direction from from heaven. Heaven is directing the things on the earth. Look, if you look at verse 2. Here's the, the vision of four beastly kingdoms. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great beasts, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now, if you've read ahead, you know this is apocalyptic literature. And the key to interpreting that is symbolism. It, it may seem hard, but, but it's not really. I mean, the, what will keep you out of the ditch with apocalyptic literature is, is, is staying between two guardrails. The first one is don't overinterpret things. 
And the second is realize that, that imagery is used to describe the indescribable. Don't, don't look for every detail or try to figure out everything that, that's, that's there, all the, the, the minutia. Don't get wrapped up in the weeds and, and realize that, that the way in which they're communicating is to try to describe something that, that is indescribable. I mean, Daniel is not concerned about every feather on the leopard's wings or, or if the eyes blink on the little horn. The vision is, is not given to, to, to fill in every detail of our curiosity or prophetic charts. I mean, Daniel leaves out great gaps because that's not the point. The point is to tell the overarching future to encourage God's people to persevere and remain faithful. I mean, a Jew in Babylon or a believer in Rome likely doesn't care who Kamala Harris is, is related to the end times or if China is one of the, the ten that rise. I mean, that's irrelevant. But this is an actual event that, that Daniel saw and heard, and that's where the symbolism comes in. You're going to, going to hear words like like. You're going to hear that word like a lot. Uh, it had wings like an eagle. It was like a lion, and that's the imagery. It's... It's not contrived or, or allegory. I mean, Daniel is not making things up. He, he saw this vision, and he writes exactly what he saw, but, but he has to use imagery to communicate the scenes to us because, because some are so otherworldly that they're hardly words. Stephen Miller said the hermeneutical principle that, that you use in interpreting prophecy is to accept the plain sense of the text unless there's a good reason to adopt some other meaning. The first thing that Daniel sees is wind. And I want you to notice that that wind is originating from heaven, directing things on the earth. Look at verse 2 again. Daniel says, I was looking in my vision in the night. He's interacting with his vision. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So he sees this wind coming in, coming from all different directions, and it's it's stirring up the, the, the sea. It's, it's affecting the earth. And this wind originates in, in, heavens and, in, in heaven, and, and it's, it's putting the sea in turmoil. It's not the Mediterranean Sea. It's something much larger than that. Whatever it is, four great beasts come up out of it. So we know it's a symbol for something. And we're told in verse 17 that these beasts are, are actually four great kingdoms of the earth. And so the great sea is the, is the earth, the, the peoples itself, and the winds are, are the heavenly powers that, that influence it. God is setting the nations in motion, and, and it's heaven that's controlling the turmoil, and it's heaven that's controlling the, the beasts rise and, and fall, which is exactly what Daniel declares in chapter 2 in response to the vision. You remember what Daniel says whenever he gets the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He affects the times and seasons, and he removes kings and he sets them up, sets up kings. One said it's God's throne room where the affairs of men are ultimately determined, not the other way around. Surely not puny men on human thrones. And here we get a glimpse backstage. It's a VIP pass for the future drama about to unfold. And, and we're, we're going to see what's happening in heaven soon. But, but right now we're seeing what's happening on the earth as the, as the effect of heaven's influence is, is happening. 
And then all four beasts rise from the annals of time in the midst of heaven's wind, and each are different from one another. Look at you at verse 4. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a humble mind was given to it. Here's the, the first beast Daniel describes. He describes a, a denatured lion. It, it's a lion with eagle's wings that, that are plucked. It's transformed from a beast to, to something like a man. I mean... And a lion was a common representation of royal power. Solomon lined his, his entryway with 12 lions. Winged lions also guarded the, the gates of Babylon. You know, the lion is the king of the beasts, just like the head of gold is the most glorious. In the statue in chapter 2. Now think back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 2. and You'll know exactly who this first beast represents. Babylon was the head of the statue, and the winged lion even represents the, it, Babylon as a nation. If you've seen any pictures of ancient Babylon, you probably know what this, what this animal kind of looked like. But this one's different. It, it, it has wings, this lion has wings, unceremoniously removed, and, and he's given the heart of a man. Look at verse 4. I looked until its wings were, were plucked. Uh, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. This is another way to describe Nebuchadnezzar's conversion of chapter 4. This is one of the reasons why I think he was actually converted. He was humbled, and his wings were plucked. He was restored. He was lifted up from the ground here in verse 4. He was converted. He was given a human mind. So this is the one king in the list that was denatured. His beastliness was taken away from him. This first king is transformed from an unclean beast into one who's like a man, one who bears God's image. He's able to think rationally. And, and when he does, he's the only king in the first six chapters to declare... I bless the Most High and praised and honor Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures. And there's little doubt or disagreement, even amongst liberal commentators, that this is the great empire of Babylon. But Daniel also sees a second beast. Look if you would at verse 5. He says, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth because its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. second beast that arises is one resembling a bear. It's not a bear, but like a bear. It's much larger on one side. One side is raised up or higher than the other, and it's given orders to, to rise and devour. In fact, its last meal is still in its mouth in this vision that, that Daniel sees. And here, in this second beast, is where the, uh, the conservatives separate from the liberals as far as the interpretation of, of Daniel goes. It doesn't take long. You just get past one, and, and there's a departure. Everybody agrees that the first one's Babylon, but, but the bear, being second to the lion in Old Testament times of, of prey, there's a departure. And it represents the Medo-Persian Empire that will devour and conquer. We see it 
in the book of Daniel, Darius the Mede. And the reason there's the departure between, with, with liberals is because this is something that has yet to take place. I mean, Daniel sees this in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So before Darius the Mede ever conquers, before Belshazzar dies, Daniel gets this vision, and that's why the skeptics depart. And they do, because that's not something that, that they think is possible. They don't depart because of something in the text, but, but because of the supernatural nature of prophecy. They claim that Daniel was written around 160 B.C. by a pseudo-Daniel, just to encourage Jewish believers uh, that were being persecuted by Antiochus Epiphanes. Think of Hanukkah, what happened then? And the reasoning is that they deny even the possibility of prophecy because the events are too accurate. And so then they twist the interpretation of the Bible to fit its narrative. People do that all the time. But as one commentator put it, I don't think unbelief is a very good hermeneutic to follow. So I don't think we want to follow them. You say, can you prove this is the Medo-Persian Empire? The text actually does. Frankly, it's very simple. I mean, if the first kingdom is Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, uh, what follows Babylon? Chapter 531 tells us that after Belshazzar, Darius the Mede began to reign. And you remember the story of Darius, Daniel, and the lion's den? You remember the law that Darius the Mede could not change? It was the law of the Medes and Persians, not just the Medes. And the Persian Empire, when it was ruling, had a large contingent of people of Median descent. There were mountain people from Iran and and yet Persia was more dominant, which is why the bears raised up on one side, larger than the other. And you could also go to the vision of chapter 8, where the ram that has two horns, clearly identified as the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, one horn's longer than the other. So this is not two kingdoms, this is one. The third beast is even more interesting. You go to verse 6. It says, after this I kept looking, and behold, uh, another, like a, like a leopard, which had on its back, fo- on its back four wind, uh, wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads. So it's like a leopard, but not like a leopard. I don't know any leopards that have four wings, or four heads. So this third animal is different from, from all the others. It's like, but unlike has these additional appendages. It's commonly identified as the empire of Greece. And the only thing that's said about it is that it, dominion was given to it, wide sweeping uh, control of, of territory. And the leopard is lesser than a lion and lesser than a bear, just like there's descending metals in the, in the first kingdom, but it's faster. It's feared as an animal of prey. John Walford said it runs fast and far and pounces upon its victims with speed and agility. It also has four wings, which, which probably represents the, the concept of speed as well. It has four heads. Uh, some think refer to intelligence, but I think it's better to see them as four divisions within the empire. Heads and horns in apocalyptic writing always refers to always refers to kings or, or rulers, and that fits perfectly what we know about history. With the swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered most of the civilized world, and 
334 B.C., he started his conquest, and he takes dominion. In, in just 10 years, he conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire. His, his domination or his dominion goes all the way from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. He's just 32 years old when he accomplishes that. Fast. And it's also a well-established fact of history that, that Alexander had four governing successors. Ptolemy and Cassander and Lysimachus and Antigonus, likely the four heads. In, in chapter 8, verse 5, Daniel tells of this third kingdom. It comes from ancient Greece, pictured as a male goat coming from the west, or the west, which is the direction that Alexander came. But the focus is the final beast, and it's the most dreadful of all. Look at verse 7. It says, after this I kept looking in the, in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So the fourth beast Daniel sees doesn't have a specific animal that, that he can assign to it because there's nothing like it. He, he has nothing in the animal kingdom to compare to, to this beast. He, he's only able to, to say it's a beast and it's dreadful, it's terrible, it's exceedingly strong. And it's a, it's a fascinating spectacle as he, as he sees one rise and fall and the other one rise. And, and he can't turn his eyes away from, from this one. This great iron teeth which distinguishes it from from the other animals. It breaks and devours all the preceding kingdoms and anything that stands in its way. It literally crushes and shatters. Its, its, its iron teeth tear, and then what's left that falls, it crushes with its, with its legs. Where Alexander the Great conquered with speed and rapid troop movements, he seldom crushed the people that he conquered. He blended the cultures of... Of his, within the rest of his empire. Way. There were more slaves in the Roman Empire than any other previous kingdom listed. There was estimated 10 to 18 million slaves in the whole of the empire. And you say, I don't see the word Rome there. And you're right. So how do we know that this is Rome? Well, I think the strongest argument comes from our Lord Himself, who speaks of the prophecies in Daniel, in Daniel 24, verse 15. Here's a sermon uh, that was given on the Olivet Discourse. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then... Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So Jesus quotes Daniel 9.27, and he clearly pictures something that's going to happen in the future. He pictures the abomination of desolation as a future event from his day. And since the desecration of the temple is a future event, and it happens, we know that from Daniel, at the end of the fourth kingdom, then it's clear this is Rome, because that's who's ruling whenever Jesus makes this Declaration. There's some additional detail, though, that comes in chapter 7. You would, verse 8. 
a little bit more about this kingdom. It's not just one whose feet are mingled. He says in verse 8, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And the three of the first horns were pulled out by, by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like eyes of, of a man and, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So just like there were ten toes on the statues and they're mingled, there are ten horns on this beast. But, but Daniel keeps looking and he, and he sees something else. There's another horn, a single little horn that, that came up among them. So among the other ten horns. We already said that horns and heads are typically kings and kingdoms. That's what they represent. And so Rome will have ten rulers. That could be ten literal parts of the empire or a symbolic number. But this one single horn is literal. There's a, it starts small, this one king small. It starts small and rises amongst the other kings. It grows in power and then, then it rips three of them out by, by the roots, dethrones three of them, assimilates them into its kingdom and, and it grows in power. This little horn is different also from all the other kings. It, it has human-like qualities. It has eyes like a man, indicating great insight and intelligence, and has a very big mouth, boasting great things. The second of the two beasts that have some human-like qualities. That's significant. Because the earlier, when the first beast that represented Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, remember the lion that had its wings plucked off? It was transformed. It was denatured. Now bears the, the image of man. The lion was wholly changed. But this little horn is not changed. It's still a horn. It, it possesses the qualities of divine image, but, but no real change. It's a counterfeitability. It's a deceptive front, just like Revelation says of the, of the Antichrist or what 1 Thessalonians says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception of those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. So with this intelligent insight, this little horn will seem to provide wisdom and answers to the masses, but and with his false mouth he'll boast of great things and deceive many and he'll blaspheme God. And Daniel is sitting there just probably stunned at what he sees and, and hears. And then all of a sudden, his vantage point changes. No explanation. Just all of a sudden, the, the scene changes. He now gets the vantage point from God's throne. If you would at verse 9, just the third insight. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and, and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So while Daniel is terrified, stunned by this fourth beast, a, a, another scene whipsaws him elsewhere. When we go from terror and howling wind and troubled seeds to this consecutive parade of beasts rising out of the water, getting worse and worse to, to the very throne room of heaven. 
where there's absolute peace and total calmness. And that serenity is because there's absolute control there. You'll find many times in the Bible where the earth is troubled by what's happening in heaven. But you'll never find a place where heaven is troubled by what's going on on the earth. Because heaven is in absolute control of the earth, including bringing the influencing winds that frost the the seas and rises, brings up these, these terrifying kings and kingdoms. I can also promise you that the vision of the one who sits on the throne here seen in heaven is much more terrifying than the beast that Daniel sees on the earth. Notice what Daniel sees first in heaven. Verse 9. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. It's the first thing he sees. I mean, in the vision, it's like Daniel enters something in progress. Thrones are being set up. It's it's active. And the Ancient of Days is not seated. He's taking his his seat. So Daniel is kind of catapulted into the middle of a scene that's happening in God's court. And and this is his throne room that, that turns into a judgment hall. And dominion is about to be handed out to someone, which is why the thrones are being set up. And and what Daniel sees here is, is heaven's activities while the stone is, is, it, that, that's carved without hands is hurling through the air. It's, it's coming to the feet. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to hit the fourth beast, if you will. And while this fourth kingdom is dominating the earth, we're transported to heaven to see, what, see what's transpiring. And you know that because in verse 11, this little horn is still yapping. It's just yapping. The sound of these boastful words while... Well, the Ancient of Days is taking his throne. And after the great battle has taken place, the whole earth will be given to the one who's called the Son of Man. He's about to judge the earth. That's what it means when it says the books were opened. And you can clearly tell who this is that takes the throne because of what he looks like, because of the throne that he's sitting on. That It is a throne. It's the throne in the midst of other thrones, and, and the worship attendants that's around him, there, there, there are millions and millions and millions of angels around him attending to him. Look at verse 9 again. He's described, His vesture was like white snow, and hair is of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was, was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him. And the two descriptions that Daniel gives here of him is, is, is white and, and the description of fire. And he's wearing white clothing as snow. His hair is pure as wool. and Both his hair and his clothes are signifying that color because God is holy. He's cleansed. It's similar to John's vision in Revelation. You remember that. And then similar to Ezekiel's vision, his throne is ablaze with fire, with wheels of burning flames. And from the throne flows a a river of pure fire engulfing everything around it. And fire is purposeful. Fire can mete out judgment on a sinner, but it can also refine and purify God's people. 
And the wheels indicate that God's judgment can be present anywhere. It's not tied down in one place. There's, there's no place that God's judgment can't meet you. Can you imagine what this looked like? Well, if you've ever tried to look at the sun, I know your mother told you not to do that. Probably like me, you probably did anyway. And then you probably looked away very quickly. Just a split second. This is like, it feels like it burns your retina. And even when you close your eyes after you've looked at the sun, even for, a, even for a second, you still see the image of that ball of light and fire there. It's like emblazoned in the, the back of your head. Well, can you imagine what it would be like to look upon the one that created that sun with his voice? I mean, if even one of the smallest of his creations hurts our eyes to look at it even for a few seconds, can, can you imagine a glimpse of the one who made it? I mean, it would be incinerating unless you were shielded by a vision like Daniel here. I mean, unless you saw a vision that was an image rather than the full force of the real thing, or unless he, he hid you in the cleft of the rock. I mean, Daniel gets to see the, the train of God's glory revealed in heaven. No man looks upon God and, and, and lives. So if that's the case, why do we treat him so casually? I mean, will you curl your puny fist, the puny fist of your heart, Refuse to yield to this one? Live contrary, degrading His grace and His commandments? And then think one day that when you stand before Him, you're just going to have a conversation with Him? Just going to let God know how you are a pretty good guy. You just drink a beer every now and then and really never hurt anybody. Think that's how it's really going to go? Then think of it from the other angle. I mean, those of us who are in, in Christ Jesus are no longer enemies. This great God is now not only our friend, but our Heavenly Father who invites us to come into His presence. He, he welcomes our petitions and our prayers, and then in death he'll, he'll come for us and receive us unto Himself. And, and the blazing fire which will incinerate the sinner is the light of life that welcomes and sustains you for all eternity. There is no night in heaven. There, there's the light of the sun in the middle of it. And so the same fire that burns is the same fire that warms the house and the hands and, and cooks the meal when you treat it properly. But you must treat God properly in order to get that rather than the other. You can also tell this is God because of His activity. Notice what He's doing. To the end of verse 10. It says, The court sat... And the books were open, so now the, the movement in heaven ceases. Everybody's on the throne, and books are opened. And he's doing exactly what Daniel says is limited to God alone. He is removing kings and giving dominion to another one. We'll see that next time. king called the Son of Man. God alone has the right to judge, and he will judge rightly. In the books are recorded everything that you have ever done, unless it's been wiped clean by the blood of Christ. You can also tell clearly who, who this is. 
who the Son of Man is. It's Jesus Christ. He's given everlasting dominion. This is not only a throne room scene, but it's a courtroom scene. The books were open. The, the kings were judged, and not according to the law of Medes and Persians or the Supreme Court precedents or the law of man, but the law of God, which has never changed. And nothing is ever added to it. Nothing is ever taken away. So after the thrones are set up, the, the Ancient of Days gives dominion to the Son of Man. He renders verdict on all those who are in the, those past kingdoms. That's what's going on in heaven. But look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Verse 13 reveals how cluelessly arrogant mankind truly is. I mean, the Ancient of Days is sitting in his judgment hall conducting court. And he set up his thrones and, and rule, and in the background you hear the voice of the little horn challenging God. This whining, nagging little voice coming from the little horn, as one said, uh, saying, I will ascend above the Most High. I will raise my throne above the stars. My kingdom will rule forever. And, and like you might flick a stink bug mid-sentence, God flicks this little king from the stage of earth and burns his body in the lake of fire. And that's how it will go in the end. The Antichrist rises and boasts of many things. There won't be any battle that day. The book of Revelation says the sword will come from his mouth. He will speak and they will fall. And verse 12 says, And for the rest of the beasts their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And, and we'll see that next time. But this morning... Let me just ask you, if, if this God has that kind of power and command, and Christian, why do you fear? You have much to rejoice over. This is told to us because we are behind enemy lines. We are exiled from the kingdom that's coming. That kingdom is reigning in our heart. But this is, so we'll hear the trumpet. It's marching across the field king is coming. Whenever you, you hear that trumpet, you're to be encouraged. And even though the beasts roam the earth, our king is in perfect peace, reigning from heaven, and he's coming to judge one day. And rescue us. And if you don't know him, this, this chapter says, bow, yield, repent. And that fire can be light for you in eternity and and not judgment. Which is a time when not just the kings of the earth, but all men will have the books opened and be judged. Let's pray. Father, what amazing visions you have given us in this book. As we understand it, it's easy to to even exalt ourselves in, in the flesh. We pour contempt on all of our pride and we say there's absolutely nothing that we have that 
hasn't come from your grace. Even the understanding that we get in a, a chapter like this, we stand on the shoulders of many who have, who have studied and, and, and labored, all for the one purpose, like to magnify ourselves or to be cute with an interpretation, to see you high and lifted up and coming again. So I pray this morning you would be honored and glorified. And if anyone doesn't know Christ, they would hear, repent, and believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.